It's Wednesday, June 3rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Funds, Bill Barker and Brian Hinman. Thanks for being here, gentlemen. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday to you. you. It is a happy Wednesday on this side of the glass. On the other side of the glass, our man Dan Boyd. Uh, a little, a little annoyed that we didn't start on. You've time. already angered him, We've <laughs> and this show hasn't. I mean, imagine how angry he'll be by the end. Uh, only worse. Well, fortunately, there's a there's a large, thick pane he of glass. He and all the readers, <laughs> yeah. or listeners. listeners. What medium are we on? Yeah, it's a it's an audio podcast. We haven't broken it out into the written form yet. Nor do we need to. Uh, we got a bunch of things to get to today, including some great stuff from the full mailbag. But let's start with news that just broke uh, right before we came in the studio, and that is from the world, the ever-changing world of video streaming. And that is the NFL has selected Yahoo to deliver its first ever live video stream of a professional football game here in the States. Ironically, this will take place uh, October 25th, a game scheduled to be played in London, and it is the Buffalo Bills against the Jacksonville Jaguars. And I say, Brian, with all due respect to any listeners we, we may have in either Buffalo or Jacksonville, I think that was a, a very carefully chosen game by the NFL and its partners, because on the face of it, that's not necessarily a game that's going to draw a lot of traditional television viewers. So, well done, NFL and Yahoo. Yeah, I agree with that. And I feel as though uh, being a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan uh, who, who could have been in consideration for such a game <laughs> and someone who has attended one of the NFL games in London, I, uh, I really am qualified to talk about this. When did you go to London for an NFL game? Uh, was that on purpose? Yes, it was the Bucks patriots uh, five years ago. And it was a second... Uh, a second honeymoon for, that my wife and I decided we deserved. Uh, she's a diehard New England Patriots fan. Uh, I'm a Bucks fan. Uh, our biggest fights have always been around sports, so we figured we'd get and our marriage started. you decided that was a good thing to do on, on, on the right foot. We'll just lay it all out on the table early and see if we can get over that hump. And we did. I'm happy for you on that uh, on that front. Um, uh, Bill, we've talked about this before. The, the world of video streaming and what we consider to be traditional television just continues. Those lines just get blurred and blurred. And this is, I don't want to overstate the impact here for Yahoo, because while the stock did pop up about 1% when this news broke, um, this does seem to really open the floodgates for professional sports. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to take the over on on how many, you know, on, on the free you know, of this kind of thing forever. That is, I think you're going to be paying for this sooner or later. And as you pointed out, it's probably a pretty good choice for the NFL because whether you're talking about CBS, ESPN, whoever, how much are they bidding for the Jacksonville uh, Buffalo game? And, And my guess is not as much as Yahoo is willing to pay for the opportunity to stream this live. I mean, this is just pretty far down. Uh, on the must-have list, so uh, you know, hats off to the NFL for uh, trying something new, and um, you know, particularly given that the time of the game is the time of the game been announced. Uh, I I don't believe it has. Yeah. I haven't seen it, so right. maybe it was, and I just didn't <laughs> see it. Yeah, I mean, you could just run it at, at seven a.m. here, whatever, whatever time makes the most sense to. Play the game in London, and uh, you know, maybe doing it uh, live on on the internet is easier than than the TV schedules. 
for for that that reason. You know, for Yahoo, this is a, a little bit of pressure because they they obviously need to make sure there are no glitches when this happens. By the same token, I I, I feel like the opportunity for them is greater than the risk because if they pull this off and pull it off well, you've already got executives at Netflix saying flat out, "No, we're not interested in live sports programming." If Yahoo can pull this off well, then it sends a signal to other professional sports leagues that, oh, we're going to be in pretty good hands if if uh, we decide to partner with them. Yeah, I think it bears saying here that uh, this isn't uh, Yahoo's maiden voyage here. It is with the NFL and sports, but uh, uh, they signed a, an agreement, a distribution agreement with Live Nation, a company that uh, is a big concert promoter, uh, a year ago to broadcast, I think it was something like one live concert per day for a year. Um, and so they they are familiar with these arrangements. Uh, they did some. They obviously have done some, gotten some learnings out of that arrangement. And they also have a better understanding, I think, for the ad revenue that they can flow through an agreement like this. So, uh, you know, I think this is significant uh, in terms of it represents changing consumer tastes and preferences. This is a way they want to be able to consume all content, even if it's live sports content. And I also also think it is a fat in the head, fat in the heather, hat, a feather in the hat of uh, ad revenue uh, shifting from traditional means to, you know, online medium. Let's move over to the online travel space, because we had talked on Market Foolery last week about Priceline which had previously taken a $500 million stake in C-Trip. Uh, last week, Priceline comes out says they're taking another $250 million uh, investment in C-Trip. Uh, and Brian, we were talking earlier, the, the online travel space in China is getting, uh, well, pretty interesting, among <laughs> other things, because C-Trip just made a bid to try and buy out a competitor. Is that right? Shunar? That's correct. And Shunar said, no, thank you. Uh, yeah, they they were polite in the words that they used, uh, but the symbolism here was definitely more a thumbing of the nose uh, while they were sort of strapping on their boxing gloves. So, by way of by way of background, I think it's worth saying that uh, the the number of people in China who are traveling and booking through uh, an online travel agency, like the equivalent of a Priceline or Expedia that we might be familiar with. Uh, that number is growing massively. So the market is large and growing rapidly and attracting a lot of competition. C-Trip has is, is historically been the leader in this market, um, but some other players, uh, Elong, Shunar, uh, there is a, you know, Tencent has a version. Uh, there are a lot of, there's a lot of competition coming to this market. And things really came to a head about a year and a half ago when the CEO of Elong came out and said, uh, they were going to enter into a price war with C-Trip. Um, and immediately after that, uh, Chunar and Elong sort of went after C-Trip's uh, you know, most profitable segments. And C-Trip lost, didn't lose market share, but in defending market share, they ended up losing a lot of money. Uh, and so the dynamics of this industry are really fascinating because it's a bloodbath right now. There is a, a, a known price war going on. And C-Trip most recently um, bought from Expedia, uh, its ownership in Elong. So it's trying to consolidate the market to stop the bloodbath. It took another step. Uh, it came out yesterday saying it was trying to buy out an, its other competitor, Shunar, to stop the bloodbath. 
And Shinar said, no, we want to fight you, essentially. So if you are a shareholder of Expedia, if I heard you correctly, so Expedia has basically said, to your point, here's a large market, it's growing massively, and we want out. That's exactly what happened. Uh, and so, uh, what, what's fascinating about about this, uh, among other things, is the market cheered Expedia when Expedia made its uh, its purchase of a part of Elong. So they love the fact that they're entering into the Chinese market. That has essentially been a black hole of investor money. Uh, you know, Expedia has basically given more and more money and seen it disappear. Um, and so when Expedia announced that they were getting out of that market, when they were selling Elon, investors cheered again and the stock went up even higher. So, <laughs> you know, investors will be fickle. But the bottom line is here, Expedia said, we prefer, uh, you know, cash today more than growth tomorrow. I, what I would ask, Brian, is what you think <laughs> the chances are uh, that this comes back, that C-Trip ultimately buys Chunar. Because it's, it's, it's not zero, it's not 100. Um, you know, the possibility that Junar will look at this offer at some point in the future and say, oh, well, the money instead of losing money is, is also a way to go. And when you're yeah. in a, you've started a business and you're growing rapidly and, and you can lose money for a while, especially with the, the backers that Junar has. Uh, but ultimately, you know, either an industry makes profits or it goes away. And and it's not going to, the online travel agency is not going to go away in China, uh, and, and no one's making money off of it right now. So in the future, somebody is going to be making money or, or everybody will be gone. So one way that somebody could make money is to, as C-Trip has attempted to do, buy out all the competition in, literally, in like a couple of weeks. Yeah. You know, they haven't pulled it off, but th- this is They've shown their hand, and, and it may not be a bad hand for Chunar to play along with. I don't know. At some point in the future. The reason that I think it's unlikely uh, that Chunar sells out is because uh, Chunar uh, is backed heavily by Baidu. Um, and Chunar's size relative to Baidu's size, it's almost a rounding error. Uh, and so Baidu has committed to its horse in the race, being Chunar, uh, and has shown a willingness to back them financially in the strategy of directly fighting uh, against C-Trip. The dynamics of this industry are a sort of winner-take-most mentality. Uh, and so they're willing to put up with a lot of pain in the near term because it's not that big a deal uh, for Baidu's financials anyway, uh, they're willing to put up with a lot of pain in the near term uh, in hopes of getting that monopoly or close to monopoly in the long term. Let's move over to an IPO that's coming down the tracks, and that is Fitbit, which is the maker of wearable fitness tracking devices. Uh, they have set their IPO price range 14 to $16 a share. Like many of the IPOs we've seen in 2015 and 2014, I'm going to take the over. I'm pretty sure, at least on day one, uh, that's going to be going over. Are you interested, Bill? No, but I have <laughs> noticed that there there are a lot more commercials uh, all of a sudden for for Fitbit out there. I don't know, you know, if anybody else has noticed that. Just online or television or or what? A- actual TV, yeah. Uh, I, I think I've been I've been watching along with just about everybody out there. I've been watching the French Open um, <laughs> tennis championships, and uh, it's been a popular ad there. 
I think uh, we've seen time and time again, uh, right after the Super Bowl, the most watched televised sporting event here in the United States. Absolutely, the French Open. Uh, well, <laughs> in your home, anyway. <laughs> um, Brian, you're actually the first person I uh, I ever knew to own one of these devices. Are you interested? No. You're not. You're not wearing it right no, now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he's not saying I'm not wearing it right now. Uh, no, I'm not interested. Um, the reason I'm not interested is because. I, I agree with you. I think this will probably be successful up front. But when it comes to the long-term viability of this company, I think that is still very much in question. I first want to say I love what Fitbit is doing and what they stand for. Um, they are building a platform. These are wearable fitness devices. And via sensor technology and algorithms, they capture different things and turn that into information that people can use to make more informed decisions uh, and manage their their weight and and exercise. Your sleep patterns. And sleep patterns and that sort of thing. Now, this information isn't 100% accurate, but it's directionally right. And it helps you, you make more informed decisions. And, you know, with I think having some information is better than having no information. Um, so I really like what the company stands for. They have a great mission to sort of you know help people get control of their you know fitness and and health and that sort of thing. That is all wonderful. They've been in business for about four years. They make money, uh, and so this is a you know an un- uncommon IPO of this ilk. But over the four years that they've been selling these devices, they have six now. Uh, they've sold about twenty-two million. Uh, which is a great number, which is, you know, and it's been growing rapidly, looks very good. But if someone, some random fruit technology company, for instance, <laughs> decided that they wanted to enter this market, they, they would sell more than 22 million uh, in their first iteration. I have no doubt about that. And they could, they could price them at, at a premium price. So if Fitbit wants to be a sustainable business in this game. Uh, they need to sell more than uh, just the actual physical product. They need to make this platform sustainable by building the community to support it so that users can track one another and communicate with one another. Now, they have this, uh, but it's certainly not insurmountable at, at this point because the industry is so young. Well, and Apple aside, we were talking earlier today, interesting to see that Nike has basically gotten out of this type of business, whereas Under Armour really seems to be going after it hard. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating uh, you know fascinating couple of uh, you know opposing views there. Um, from a pure hardware perspective, uh, I'm impressed that Fitbit has been able to make money on this. You know, it didn't seem compelling enough for Nike to stay in there, even though they were capturing a lot of information that could be used to funnel into. The rest of their business, and yeah, Under Armour has made a big play into this and has really doubled down on it. And they want to own this space. This space is really controlled by Fitbit now, uh, but it's so nascent uh, that I, th- I think that's virtually meaningless. Yeah, I think that that it's tough to have Apple as your competition when Apple has developed a, you know a product that does. Uh, some or all or most or however much of what Fitbit does that it chooses to do, 
uh, plus I don't know ninety to a hundred thousand other things. Um, <laughs> sure, and and uh, is not priced at at ninety to a hundred thousand times uh, the cost of Fitbit. Rather, you know, it's it's sort of maybe two to three times the yeah. cost, depending on the model. I do want to rail a bit on one of the things that really annoys me about the Fitbit IPO here, and that is they are they're IPOing with a dual share class. And uh, the A shares will have one vote per share, and the B shares will have 10 votes per share. Uh, effectively, if, if this is an oversubscribed offering, um, the voting class that is available to us common folk will represent about 1.7% of the available voting power or something <laughs> like that. So, so they are, they are, they're taking money, but they're not interested in what you have to say as a shareholder. Um, yeah. That rubs me the wrong way. It's not, you know, necessarily make or break for for most investors, but I don't like what that what that means. I, I don't like it either. And one of the reasons I don't like it is because, among other things, it it says to me we're a little defensive. Yeah, we're a little thin skinned and we're a little defensive, and therefore we're not as confident as we should be. There's a and, lot of hubris in there too. Uh, just saying we know best. Yeah. No, no other investor could possibly advise us on our business. And I, I think that they're one or two other risk-related things that investors need to know about here. So, my point about them selling essentially hardware and needing to own the sort of software and softer side of this equation, uh, they've only 99% of their revenue comes from sales of hardware. So, the customized workout plans and uh, you know upgraded offerings that they sell, they've had no success with that. So, so they are very much unproven. Uh, in that in that ranks right now. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Uh, before we get to the email, did you want to um, uh, chat briefly about FIFA? Because Bill Mann was in on the radio show last week. We had talked about the corruption scandal at FIFA. And at the time that we taped the interview, Sepp Blatter, who's uh, in charge of FIFA, was maintaining his innocence and in the subsequent days has, has stepped down. And Well, he's still maintaining his innocence. Yeah, he's just resigning. He's just resigning. Uh, did I want to comment about that? Well, I, you came to me yesterday and said, "Well, you know, one of the philosophies that I talk about sometimes is, is that what you want in life is an easy act to follow." Right. And does the next uh, head of FIFA have an easy act to follow? And At, from from the outside, you, you, it would seem so. That just be slightly less corrupt, and you're going to be more successful than Sepp Blatter. Right. Just 10% less corrupt. That's all. But FIFA itself, since we, from the outside, believe that it's entirely corrupt, doesn't seem to have had any problem with him. So who, whoever comes in next uh, will, will, in fact, I think, have a, a hard act to follow for, from the perspective of the FIFA membership, who elected this guy many times, elected him in last week in the face of everything that we, that we currently know and whoever comes in is is going to have to undo a lot of what has been done uh in the face of uh, a population that doesn't mind being corrupt 
embraces it. I mean, it celebrates it, really. I mean, they, <laughs> do you think they, that's gonna, they, they just reelected him. Do you think that's going to come up in the job interviews? It's like, okay, uh, we've got your resume. Talk to us about corruption. What's uh, how, how do you approach bribing officials? What's your strategy? Uh, I, I, yeah, I think I think yes, it's going to come up, and it's going to be a sort of a delicate uh, conversation, isn't it? All right. Well, along the same lines, uh, in, at least uh, in terms of the sporting world, uh, again, radio at fool.com or email address question from Rupert Laurie. It writes, are there any likely opportunities in Europe for consolidation within the sports apparel brands? I'm really interested to see if there are some buying opportunities. The only one that leaps to mind for me is Adidas, but uh, I'm sure there are other sports apparel brands uh, out there. What do you think? Uh, I think there are likely consolidation opportunities. I don't happen to know what they are, and, and I won't represent that I have good investing ideas based upon the question, except to say that there is a lot of M&A going on. Um, and in particular, given the strong dollar, the opportunity for U.S. companies to uh, flex their muscles um, and buy stuff that would have been 20-25% more expensive uh, a year ago. Uh, the, the movement of currency has already generated uh, uh, some sizable U.S. Uh, uh, acquisitions of some outstanding European companies. And uh, when you take that fact and combine it with you know how much money is overseas and unable to be repatriated, uh, that's another opportunity for U.S. companies. And and I would not be at all surprised to see uh, you know some of the lesser players acquired. To what extent, if any, not, does, not Adidas. I mean, you're talking right. there about an acquirer, right? To what extent, if any, does a company being bought out factor into your thinking? Zero. None I mean, uh, you, you never look at a, a stock and think, well, uh, there's uh, among other things two, there's two percent. A, like, I would, a, I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I mean, there are there are companies that that within the funds, I'm aware of that there is, say, a third party who is speculating that it could be an acquisition target, and and that's sort of something to throw in, like, well, that's one additional minor good. But I'm I'm not handicapped. I'm not in the boardrooms that would, you know, discuss this actually happening. Uh, if if the company is not worth investing in on its own right, I think investing in it on the basis that you think that it might be acquired and you think that the price that it's currently you know available for is less than the you know price at which it would be acquired is you know adopting a whole bunch of guesses that that would not be part of my philosophy. You feel the same way? Uh, mostly yes, at least on the analysis piece, uh, where it does play a. a a, a smaller role is in uh, determining when to sell something. Uh, you know, you, you sort of think through what you think a company is worth. One way to make that assessment is by looking at what price it might fetch uh, by a, you know a motivated buyer, uh, and so that can help inform that decision. But uh, rarely and uh, and closer to never is it the, the the primary pillar upon which a thesis is formed. Yeah, I mean, I could see holding on to something that you might otherwise sell because you see a lot of acquisition going on in that space, uh, which I think is is different from choosing to buy something uh, on the basis that you think that you can predict an acquisition. Now, you know, the, there are companies which are 
actively engaged in making a lot of acquisitions that I would be an interested buyer of um, and, and that have put forward their acquisition strategy. Uh, but and, and sometimes they, they themselves end up being acquired there as a company uh, in one of our portfolios, Catamaran, which uh, part of the thesis was that they were one of the few companies within the uh, pharmacy benefit manager space that had the opportunity and inclination and expertise of acquiring other players. Uh, they themselves were acquired recently, and you know shareholders got a 25, 30 percent you know bump uh, on on that day. But that that you know we we were operating from the other side of the thesis. They had expertise uh, at at making acquisitions, and they themselves were acquired, and that that worked out okay. But you know that was a surprise. One other thing Bill Mann and I talked about on the radio show last week was his recent trip to Nebraska. Brian, you were on that trip with him. What's one thing you know now about Bill Mann, having traveled with him, that you didn't know before? <laughs> uh, I'll give you two. That you can say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll g- that you can disclose. I'll give you two. He is quick to change shoes. He immediately gets dress shoes off. Uh, as quickly as he can. The more interesting thing that I learned about him, though, is when you're when you're eating with him, he eats the entire unit of food. Doesn't jump back and forth between things. So if he's so got meat, it, potatoes, and vegetables, he's, he's eating one of those at a time to completion before moving on. I did not know that about him. That, that's that's essentially how I eat. Really? Yeah. Live a little, guys. Because, because you first, you're going to eat the meat, right? I mean, that's 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 number one. Yeah, I'm I, I'm I'm just immediately my mind went to Thanksgiving dinner. I'm mixing it up. I'm a little stuffing, a little turkey gravy, a little little bit of vegetables. Back to the stuffing. Back for more stuffing. <laughs> Amen, Chris. Uh, email from Mel Lockwood, listener number five hundred twelve. On yesterday's show, when you discussed National Donut Day. I believe Morgan Housel asked, does every day have something special associated with it? Below is a link that lists bizarre and unique days for almost every day of the year. And he sent a link to a website, which is HolidayInsights.com. Mel goes on to write, I use this information at work to make sure my coworkers are aware of how special each and every day is. Keep up the great work. I thoroughly enjoy the show. Uh, Mel uh, also mentions that he is a member of our stock advisor service, Hidden Gems, Rule Breakers, and he is also a shareholder of Motley Fool Fund. So, All right. Mel, thank you very much. Um, and uh, again, holiday, HolidayInsights.com is the link that he sent, and it appears to be, on the, on the face of it, a mixture of legitimate holidays legitimately declared national days. Wait, wait, wait. Like National Donut Day is a legitimate holiday? Well, no, I was going to say like Memorial Day is a legitimate holiday. Okay. Um, uh, Where's the dividing line? um, See, that's what the website needs is a dividing line. But (laughs) in your mind, between a legitimate holiday. I think anything that shows up on a calendar like your basic well, calendar. Well, this is a calendar, right? This <laughs> no, is, not really. Not like a calendar <laughs> it's not get. a legitimate calendar, <laughs> yeah, is exactly. what you're now saying. Um, but National Donut Day, which is the first Friday of uh, June. And then there are things wait, like... Wait, is that, so is that legitimate or yeah, not? Yeah, we talked about this yesterday. In 1938, uh, Salvation Army workers brought donuts um, uh, to soldiers. Uh, so there is actual history. It's not... Even though I love me some donuts... 
and I would not. Sometimes you bring them in. Sometimes for, for the rest. And of I us. would not fault the donut makers of the world for just getting together and saying we need our own day. I wouldn't fault them at all. But this actually has uh, a, a charitable act at its origin. So that's that's a nice thing. Which in no way was promoted by the donut industry <laughs> for their own uses exactly. later on. But but some of these appear to it's be heartwarming. Yes, really. it is heartwarming. What's your go-to donut? Uh, I'll give you any donut you want in the world. I'll get it to you immediately. Any maker? I mean, the, the one that I, you know, when there's a, a whole selection of donuts that, that are put out there, I, I really, I mean, I just, a straight glazed donut. What's better than that, you know? Do you have I mean, a, it's, it's just a classic. Do you have a brand, like a Krispy Kreme, a hot glazed donut, or just any glazed donut will do? I haven't had that many Krispy Kreme donuts in my life, but every one I've had has been pretty pretty good. Yeah. You? You're a healthy guy. You never eat donuts, but on the rare no, occasion I, that you I do. No, I have a sweet tooth. Oh, I, yeah, I can, I can throw. If that you're some eating donuts. a donut. Does the Fitbit start yelling at you, or like <laughs> what happens? That's it's one of the downfalls. They haven't developed the technology that reaches out of the the, the wrist unit and slaps the food out of your hand. But, but I mean, could it just like start heating up or something? <laughs> It detects sugar, like a, a well. Once it's in, in you know, in your system, it's, it punishes you, yeah. right? <laughs> Maple frosted, but I have to say, I am going to enjoy riding the artisan donut craze that's going on right now until it crashes and burns, because uh, there there are some darn good donut flavors being concocted right now. Yeah, you've been to Sugar Shack, I take it, in Alexandria. Yes. Yeah. Any, anyone visiting the greater D.C. area, find your way to Alexandria. And you can stop by Full HQ, but you really want to hit Sugar Shack because if you like donuts, holy cow. Could, you, could you bring some in tomorrow now that you've you know promoted them like this? You know what? I will. All right. I will. Now, I don't know that I'm going to be stopping by the first floor where you guys sit, <laughs> but I'll, I'll be bringing in Sugar Shack. Bring some in, put them on my desk, you and can, eat them. You can read more from Brian Hinman and Bill Barker. You can go to foolfunds.com and sign up for declarations. It's the free monthly newsletter. And again, it's free, and it's only once a month. So you're, you're not going to get spammed by them uh, with declarations. It's just once a month. Thanks for being here, guys. Sure thing. You make it sound like it would be a tragedy if we came <laughs> out with two in a month. Well, you know, I'm 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 not saying that. I'm just, I'm just saying that you know. You're you're like with a daily show. Is that such an awful thing? Uh, it depends. Would on it who, be better if it were monthly? <laughs> depends on who you ask. <laughs> As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>